here's what we're going to do. Your meet reformers, meet the reformers insert actually has a lady. So you want to take a look at that and read about Lady Jane Grey. But I want to show you two videos uh, about John Wycliffe. Uh, we're taking a little more time with Scripture alone. And John Wycliffe uh, is the individual who first translated the Bible into English. So let's hear a little bit about John Wycliffe. Welcome to Lutterworth, the workplace of John Wycliffe and the place where he did his most significant work. John Wycliffe has often been referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. The morning star is a term coined to describe either a planet or a star that appears shining brightly in the sky just before sunrise. John Wycliffe lived around 150 years before Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and the later English reformers. But the work that he did was key in paving the way for them. He was a reformer before the term became popular. Standing alone as a voice of change in his generation and in calling people back to the Bible. Educated at Oxford University, he was a scholar and an unrivaled debater. It was whilst he was a student that he first incurred the displeasure of Rome in denouncing the friars and their lazy lifestyle. He was a champion of civil and religious liberty. And John Wycliffe was the first in his era who coined the term Antichrist in reference to Rome. The Archbishop of Canterbury received from Rome a papal bull to investigate the writings of John Wycliffe. But due to his standing at Oxford University and the goodwill he had amongst the people, this was never followed through. Perhaps a key event that helped John Wycliffe was the papal schism of 1378, where there were two popes that each claimed to be the right pope. And so amidst this confusion, John Wycliffe was left in a state of relative peace to carry on the work that he was called to do. John Wycliffe was a great believer in the ministry of preaching. He trained men who were known as the Lollards and sent them out all over the country preaching the gospel. But his greatest achievement was the translation of the Bible. Today, we might not grasp the gravity of this, but back then, to read the Bible in the language of the people, as opposed to the Latin, was seen as heresy, something that was forbidden and viewed as dangerous. A church leader in Wycliffe's day, commenting on his translation, said these words. And so the gospel pearl is thrown before swine and trodden underfoot. And that which used to be so dear to both clergy and laity has become a joke. And this precious gem of the clergy has been turned into the sport of the laity. Wycliffe, though, declared plainly, Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. It is certain that the truth of the Christian faith becomes more evident the more the faith is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but in the common tongue. John Wycliffe completed the first translation of the Bible into the English language from the Latin Vulgate. It was not a translation that was without fault, but this Bible shed light where previously there had been only darkness. The Bible once read could do only one thing, pierce through the spiritual darkness that was covering England and Europe at the time. The beams of light began to shine now. The revolution that would be the Reformation would become unstoppable. Today we have the Bible easily accessible. 
And today I want to challenge you to commit to read God's Word every day, to spend time in His Word, because as the psalmist says, the entrance of thy words gives light. Wycliffe. Uh, very interesting what the Roman church did to uh, persecute him and uh, actually not content to uh, kill him, but actually dig up his bones, burn them after he was already dead. So let's take a look at that. Thirty years after the death of Wycliffe, at the Council of Constance in Germany, he was declared to be a heretic. A decree was made to dig up his bones and burn them to ashes. At that time, the Bishop of Lincoln was a former friend of his and he delayed in acting on this request for five years. He moved out the area and the next one who came in also vacillated for eight years before finally succumbing to this demand and dug up the bones and burned them. After burning his bones, they threw the ashes into the River Swift. But the significance of this gruesome act and the symbolism it would come to later represent, they could not have imagined. The River Swift flows into the River Avon. The River Avon flows into the Bristol Channel and the Bristol Channel eventually flows into the Atlantic Ocean and so symbolically the effect of his work spread around the whole world. He is called the morning star of the Reformation because he was the beginning in a chain of events that once started became unstoppable. John Wycliffe gave to the Christian Church perhaps the greatest gift possible the Bible. And once given, the light would begin to shine and the darkness would be peeled away. John Wycliffe's work is key in our Christian heritage, for at the center of our faith is the Bible. Never underestimate the extent of the work that you do. John Wycliffe was called here to Lutterworth, a small, quiet country town, or probably back then, just a village. If any of us were called here to this town today, we might think it's not good enough, or not big enough, or not prestigious enough. But he faithfully did the work that God had called him to do, and gave to the Christian church perhaps the greatest gift possible. Wherever you are, use the gifts and the talents that God has given you for you never know how far your influence may spread. All right. Amen. That's a good word. A good word as we head into uh, our World Outreach Celebration. And realize this, that no matter what you do in ministry, if you do it with the Word of God, then you can be assured of God's Spirit, God's presence, and God's power. And yet the reality is this, the reality is this, that when we talk about the Bible so often, so many times, what people want to really talk about are the errors in the Bible. So what we're doing right now in our series is talking about Scripture alone. And I've said on the basis of 2 Timothy 3, and if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn there to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we said if you really want to understand Scripture alone, you need to think in terms of four words. Authority, inerrancy, clarity, and sufficiency. Last week we talked about authority and have a little review there in your notes, but today we want to talk about this word inerrancy. If you see in your notes, it says this, inerrancy. The Bible is God speaking truthfully without error. The Bible is God speaking 
truthfully. If the scriptures are inspired and if they are going to be God-given authority, then they need to speak truthfully without error. Now, there's always people trying to undermine the faith of God's people. And one of those individuals is a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, who by all practical purposes, based on his own testimony, is an apostate. Someone that believed the Bible, was taught the Bible, was, was taught Scripture alone, but came to a point, for whatever reason, to where now he is a scholar that debates. He's been here in Kansas City. I've heard him debate. Likeable individual. And those are the most deadly. Undermining the faith. Here's what he says in his best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus. What good is it to say that the autographs, that is the original uh, writings, were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies. And the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them. Evidently, in thousands of ways. There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, that is a powerful statement. There are more variations. There's more differences. And some would even say there's more errors in the copies that we have than there are words in the New Testament. Now, you may have, you know, not read this book. You may have not encountered a, an apostate scholar. But there are people who undermine the faith of the Bible all around us. I've mentioned several times of a pastor I know who's in this area who's departing from the faith regarding the biblical authority of scriptures. Somebody I would never guess to have done that. Somebody that has influence over a big church. And yet, if you talk to people, you'll see, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Well, the Bible's been... Co- How many of you had, have had this said to you? How many of you have, have had someone say to you, well, the Bible's full of errors when you've talked to them? It's been copied numerous times. How do we know what they really said? In fact, as a, I don't know, a divine appointment, I'm studying yesterday, wrapping this up, and there's a knock at a door. And Dana and Kim know, you know, we have different uh, unique individuals that come and visit us every once in a while. And this was one of them. Never seen him before. He's a homeless man. And I'm, I'm not uh, mocking him. I'm not making fun of him. But I, I was entranced by his appearance. Okay. Uh, he, he was about my height. He kind of looked like a leprechaun look about him. He had a leaf sticking out of his mouth. He had a Alpine hat with feathers sticking out of that, sunglasses on the back of that. He had leggings with shorts over his leggings. He had a little black bag he was carrying. He kind of like a, I don't know, like a form of Santa Claus that came to visit. A, a, a fall elf. I don't know. And, uh, and he had a paint can that was painted gray. I didn't ask him what was in it. So Lonnie was his name, so I talked to Lonnie for a little bit. Lonnie had many things to tell me. Lonnie wanted me to look at butterflies and to see God speaking through those butterflies and that God's speaking all around if we would just take the time to slow down. And if you interact with individuals like this, you know that if you sit and listen, they will talk forever, kind of like preachers. But I had to interrupt him, and I said, well, Lonnie, let me ask you, have, have you ever read the Bible? You know, God speaks to us through His Word. Oh, I have tons of Bibles. I have tons of Bibles. But none of them agree. None of them agree. I said, well, Lonnie, it's, it's ironic you say that because I was just studying this. I mean, I felt bad for the guy because I'm like, okay, I'm fully loaded for this right now. You know, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to really share this with you. But I said, Lonnie, that's just not true. That's just not true. Our Bibles do agree. Our Bibles are accurate. Our Bibles are uh, true. And our Bibles are authoritative. Well, uh, Lonnie's lucky charm air went out the door, along with Lonnie, practically running. I mean, Lonnie didn't want to talk anymore. Lonnie was done talking. Lonnie was saying as he walked out the door, I'll be praying for you. And I'm thinking, no, you. You know, I, my, my point is this. I don't care where you're at. You're going to encounter these arguments. Okay, you're going to encounter it. And they're legitimate questions and often, uh, you know, 
people that are saying them are, are don't really know what they're saying, but it is an obstacle we need to deal, deal with. Are you with me? And so, let's talk about today. Does the Bible speak truthfully? So let's define our terms. What we're talking about is inerrancy. I know that's not a common term. It's a term we have to use. It's very simple, though, what it means. It means without error. Inerrancy, without error. If something is inerrant, it, is, it has the quality of being without any error, completely true, without error. Infallible. We'll talk about infallible. Infallible means incapable of erring. So it's real simple. Inerrancy is being without error. Infallibility is the state of not being able to err. It kind of raises the bar. Not only are there not errors, but it's incapable of erring. Now, the reality is this. God is infallible, is he not? Because God's incapable of erring. He's incapable of sinning. He's incapable of doing it wrong. Therefore, what he says and what God does is without error. It is inerrant. Now, us fallen human beings, it's real easy to see that apart from God's grace, are never going to be infallible, right? We're never going to be incapable of erring unless God intervenes in our lives. In fact, we're very errant. We are very capable of erring and very cap- and we do err in what we say and do. And yet, the Roman Catholic Church believes that a human individual, i.e. the Pope, can be infallible, incapable of erring. All right? Now, where do we find the word inerrancy in this passage? 2 Timothy 3, uh, 6, uh, 15, particularly 15 through 16. Well, we don't find the word there, but the meaning and the implication of the word is there. Because when Paul says that the writings, the Old Testament writings, are sacred or holy, he's saying, look, they're without error. They're holy. They're pure. They do not err. And when he says all Scripture is inspired of God, he's saying they're breathed out by God. How can the God of truth breathe out error? So do you see the implication? And that's what we're going to develop today. So let me give you some definitions of the inerrancy of Scripture. I think it's just really important to always define our terms. And so here's the most simple, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Copies are back there. I handed them out to you last week. Here's a real simple definition. So if, you don't, if you're like, okay, I'm overwhelmed today, okay, well, hang on to this definition. The Scriptures are without error or fault in all its teachings. This is, this is what inerrancy teaches. And I believe it's what the Bible teaches, what God teaches, what God the Son teaches, what God the Spirit teaches. Now, I like Multnomah Bible College up in the Northwest. It says, the Bible is inerrant as to fact. In other words, it does not, uh, it, it does not tell lies. And it's infallible as to truth. It is incapable of not telling the truth. Now, I have a little more robust definition there. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible, in its original autographs or manuscripts, and correctly interpreted, is entirely true and never false in all it affirms. Whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to social relationships or physical or life Sciences, social sciences, physical sciences, or life sciences. Now, this definition is, highlights at least four truths about inerrancy. So let me hit these quickly. Look at the first part of the definition. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known. Here's the reality. Again and again, archaeological discoveries prove the Bible is true. Okay, so critics will say there's no such group as the, you know, humorites. I don't know. I'm making up a name. You know, there's no there's no ites like that. The Bible says there are, but there aren't. And then up comes a discovery is sure enough, there are. Okay, and that's the reality. And I would tell you this, even if tomorrow there's an archaeological discovery that 
seemingly disproves the Bible, I will still stand with the Bible. Because when all the facts are in, it's just like the, uh, the evolutionary thing of the, the missing link. You know how many missing links have been th- brought forth by science and scientists? And every one of them has been proven false. So, you know, fake news before there was fake news. Here's the bottom line. Time or eternity itself will prove that the Bible is God speaking truthfully and without error. Secondly, in this definition, it says, in Eresi's view, that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs. It's important to remember that what we're talking about regarding the Bible, inerrancy and inspiration apply only to the original Autographs. They don't apply to tra- translations, are not totally perfect and without error. Okay? The copies, let these represent the copies. Here's the original, totally uh, without error, totally inspired directly by God. Well, all of these, none of these are directly inspired by God as they were copied. There, there, there's all sorts of errors. That's what Bart Ehrman's trying to get us to see. There's no two of these manuscripts, and we're going to see there's over 5,800 copies of the New Testament. No two of them exactly agree alike. And you say, well, that kind of sounds scary. Do we really want to be saying this? Yes. No translation is inerrant and directly 100% inspired. Otherwise, you'll be like the Roman Catholic Church that said the Latin Vulgate is the inspired, final, authoritative word of God. And the rest of the world moves on, and Latin becomes a dead language, and what are you stuck with? A dead Bible in a language no one uses. And it's not just Roman Catholics that do this. What about Baptists, who are King James only? The King James translation is directly inspired. It's it's without error. It's the standard. In fact, some will argue you even correct these Greek manuscripts with the King James Bible. The problem is which edition of the King James Bible. And the translators of the King James Bible themselves said, look, improve on this thing. Why? Because unlike the originals, it's not 100% completely without error. Third thing about this definition is inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible and its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false. Often, people see errors in the Bible because they don't properly interpret the Bible. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem often is with us who are interpreting the Bible and bringing a modern, scientific, rigid mindset to the Bible. For instance... When the Bible says Jesus would be in the grave three days, if you think in terms of error and false and rigidity and and pseudo-scientific fact, you're going to say, well, that means he has to be in the grave at exactly 24, three three days of 24 hours in length for each day. But in reality, in the Jewish culture in which the Bible was written, A day was considered a day when it was any part of a day. So Jesus goes in the grave Friday. He's in it for one full 24 hours on Saturday. He rises early Sunday, but that's three days when you understand how to properly interpret that phrase. And then finally, this definition says it will be proven true and never false whether it relates to doctrine or ethics or social, physical, or life sciences. The point is this, the Bible tells the truth, not always in a mechanical, rigid, or scientific, you know, scientific, modern mindset. The Bible is not a science book, but it's the ultimate authority on where we come from and how we got here and where we're going. It's not a medical book, but it's the ultimate authority and speaks truly on what really is wrong with the human person. What is the most deadly disease we have? It is sin. Where does all disease come from? The Bible's not a counseling book, but it's the ultimate authority on how to view and resolve our deepest root problems. It's not a parenting book, but it speaks truthfully on how to raise and discipline our kids. It's not a marriage book, But it speaks truthfully on what marriage is and what marriage is not and how one man and one woman become 
one flesh having leaved and cleave. Did you guys take notes on that? You'll hear it again in a week. They're getting ready. They're excited. Are you excited? Dane, up here. Are you excited? Yeah, that's okay. okay. I know. You're in the Word. That's good. You're leading by example. I like that. I like that. Do I? Yes, yes, yes. You are. You are. Um, all right. So, what are some confessions? Uh, I have those there. You can read those. Ultimately, what the London Baptist Confession reminds us there that you have in your notes, it reminds us of this. That ultimately, we cannot convince anyone that the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and authoritative. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that will speak to us concerning the word that he himself has inspired. Now, let's look. I will just keep moving. Um, Let's look at this lesson is built around three vital truths about inerrancy and two critical questions. I'm not going to tell you everything there is to know. This is a overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It can get really uh, complex. But at the end of the day, remember this, inerrancy. The Bible is God speaking truthfully without error. Okay, so let's dive in. Three vital truths about the inerrancy of scriptures. The first is this. The inerrancy of scripture is directly tied to the character of the holy triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, what you say or don't say about inerrancy says something or doesn't say something about God himself. Are you ready? Okay, so let's look at it. Listen, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in revelation. God the Father graciously and freely chose to reveal himself. If he didn't, we would be a mess. All right? Just look at the religions of men and see how confusing and how dark and how desperate we would be if God hadn't chosen to reveal himself. He chose to reveal himself in such a way that he revealed what was necessary, but not all there was to know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. The Bible tells us what God wants us to know, and that should be good enough for us. When we want to know more than what the Bible says is when we get in trouble and you start getting wacky doctrines, okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words. So don't worry about what God doesn't answer. Worry about what He has revealed and obey it. Amen? That's revelation. And in that revelation, He did it by His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is the means by which He revealed it. And that revelation reaches its climax in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, Jesus said, If you want to understand the Scriptures, you've got to understand and see that they're all pointing to Me. The Old Testament promises His coming, and the New Testament shows how He fulfilled All of God's promises. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in revelation. But here's the reality in your notes. All three divine members of the Trinity are involved in the revelation and inspiration of the Bible. And yet all three are revealed as being absolutely true truth tellers. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. They are absolutely true in their nature, in their character. There's no error in them. God is pure and holy, the Son, the Father. And when they speak, they are truth tellers. So, here's what I want you to see. God the Father. I'm just going to give you some verses to back that up because we're talking Scripture alone. So, I want it based on Scripture. God the Father is an absolutely true truth teller. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. In other words, he doesn't deliberately deceive and he doesn't make mistakes and have to go back and correct. What I really meant was, God doesn't talk that way, that he should repent. He has said 
and will he not do it? Or he has spoken and will he not make good on it? Who in your life can say, I will always make good on what I say? It's not your spouse. It's not your parents. It's not your boss. We know that, right? Who in your life can you read what they say and say, look, I will make good on that. God the Father is a truth teller. What about God the Son? Well, God the Son, from the very beginning, says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. So, if Jesus errs, then the Word errs. And if what Jesus says about the Word errs, then Jesus isn't Jesus anymore. He is true, and He's a truth teller. Here's what Jesus said about Himself. John 1.18 no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Listen, if we can't trust what Jesus says to be 100% true about God the Father, then we can't know God the Father. John eight forty. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. So when Jesus is speaking on earth, he's speaking the truth that he heard from God the Father. And then finally, John fourteen six. can you make it any more clear, Jesus? Jesus said to him, I am the way and I am what? I am the truth. And so there, if he errs in any way then Jesus is no longer Jesus. What about God the Spirit? Well, in John 16, 13, Jesus says about the Spirit, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. And it's that same Holy Spirit of truth that inspired the original authors of the Bible. And so here you got the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, inspiring the very writings of the Word of God, and yet if they're filled with errors, what does that say about the Spirit of truth? you got to put a little asterisk up there that says, not really, not completely. Okay. Therefore, here's the conclusion. So look in your notes. Therefore, what has been revealed and written under divine inspiration by this true and truth-telling trinity must be incapable of error and actually without error. Why? Because God cannot lie. Does this make sense? If the trinity is a truth-telling trinity and is absolutely true in its nature, then what it speaks, what they speak, must be absolutely true because God cannot lie. In fact, Titus 1-2 says that we have the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised ages ago. If the Bible has errors in it, then our hope of eternal life has no basis, no sure foundation, right? Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? God said so. Yeah, but God lies. Hebrews 6, when God is promising to Abraham that you will have a seed, both physically and spiritually, that will be as great as the stars of the heaven, to make sure Abraham knows that he's telling the truth, God says, look, I'm going to swear. I'm going to pinky swear. But I'm not going to pinky swear with you because you're a fallen, fallible human being. I'm going to pinky swear with myself. I'm going to swear by myself because there's no one greater. So in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he made an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which is it impossible for God to lie... We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope before us. The two unchanging things are God's true nature and God's truthful promises. Okay. And so inerrancy is tied. Listen, the only person in Scripture whose nature is tied to lying is who? The devil. John 8, 44. 
Jesus said, you're of your father of the devil, and you do, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now, be careful what I'm about to say. That means that when men and women undermine the truth of Scripture by saying there are errors in it, there are lies in it, there is half-truths in it, they're operating according to the father of lies. I'm not saying they're demon-possessed. I'm not saying they're, you know... I'm just saying there's really just two sides to this. The devil, who's the father of lies, and God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who tells truth. So that's the first thing. Secondly, the inerrancy of the Bible... is directly tied to inspiration and therefore the authority of the Bible. And really, all I'm trying to say here is this. If you say, if you do damage to inerrancy, you not only do damage to the character of God, but you do damage to the inspiration of Scripture. You say, well, that seems pretty obvious. Why would you make a point of that? Because... There are people, professing Christians, professors, pastors, ordinary people who will say, sure, the Bible is inspired, but it has errors. And we're not talking about transmission, copying errors. We're talking about Paul didn't really know what he was talking about when he talked about what marriage was. Paul didn't really understand what we now understand regarding social and moral relationships so we got to help paul out well wait a minute you're saying what paul said wasn't true well he got it wrong yeah but is the bible inspired well of course the bible is inspired doesn't make sense but that's exactly where it is so all i'm saying is if this is god inspired and god breathed out then this original work was without error here's the third thing Inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible are directly tied to the original writings. They're directly tied to the original writings. In second in First Timothy three, fifteen through sixteen, when it says God's breathed, it's saying, Look, when God originally breathed out his word through spirit moved men, it was totally true, totally without error. But these copies, and then when you come down here and from these copies, we come up with a Greek text. And from that Greek text, we have a translation of your Bible. Okay, so your Bible is based on a Greek text that's comprised and comes from over 5,800 copies. And yet... No two of these copies totally agree at all points. So the only thing that was directly, completely inspired and without error was the original. And, you know, and we're talking 66 books, you know, what was originally written. Okay. So I've given you a handout. You're like, well, how's all this, you know, how's this work? Well, we're not going to go over it all. But you have a chart there. God in His sovereignty and God in His providence chose to do it this way. I'm not quite sure I understand why. I'm not going to even attempt to explain why. But the facts are, this is the way God chose to do it. And for most of us, if you've walked with God very long, He doesn't really do things the way we think He ought to. And yet, if you walk with God, you find that His ways are better than our ways. And His ways are higher than our ways. But this is the way He did So, God inspired this a very human process. But because God wants His Word to be known, because God wants His Word translated into every language and people group, God has providentially cared for 
and preserved his word, especially in the New Testament, through these 5,800 copies that have come down to us. So, let me tackle two critical questions. If, if, if you're thinking and tracking, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say, wait a minute, that raises two big questions in my mind. All right, And if it doesn't, Somebody's going to raise them for you, perhaps your kids, when they go off to college. So here's the questions. Number one, if only the original writings were inspired and inerrant, and we no longer have the original writings, then why does it matter if the original writings were inspired and inerrant in the first place? So critics will say to us, why are you getting your, your if, if this is wrong to say, panties in a wad, uh, about inspired originals when we don't have the inspired originals? That's a fair question, isn't it? They're like, why don't you guys just get on with it? You know, just, what's, why is this such a big, you guys are so divisive. Let's just, we're all just one big group. It's okay, the originals don't exist. doesn't matter if they're inspired or not. It doesn't matter if they're without error. Well, a couple points. If the original writings contain errors and falsehoods, then they were never inspired by God and were not and were not and still are not uniquely necessary and authoritative. Listen, if there's errors up here, then this book was just like every other book any human would write. Are you with me? So, that is important. Otherwise, it's not inspired and not uniquely necessary, and we have no basis. If this is not without error in the original, we have no basis for the doctrine of Scripture alone. Are you with me? Number two, if the original writings were breathed out by God, and Scripture says that they are, but God spoke in error, then God lied. So this is important. The originals were God-breathed, 1 Timothy 3.16. If they're in error, then God is in error. He's lied. God's a false witness, and that's not a good thing. Especially when the Scriptures say God cannot lie. Third, if the original writings were filled with errors, then we have no hope of recovering them through the process of transmission and textual criticism. We have no hope of having a reliable and authoritative translation. If this is, was not perfect, then there's no hope of recovering it through these copies. So if this is in error, all these copies, what are they doing? They're multiplying error. And adding to them. Okay? So, if this is not... But, if this is without error, then we have hope, and it's a very confident hope, and a very sure hope, of recovering, and as we're going to see in a moment, we have a Bible that is 99.9% pure reflection of the original autographs. That's better than ivory soap. Yeah, for some of you that are old enough to remember that commercial. 99.9%. Okay, so let's dive into this. Let's dive into this. And, and by the way, another reason why these aren't around, what would we do if we had the original? What would we do with them? We would worship them. We would turn relics into them, just like the bronze serpent in the, serpent in the Old Testament. God said, make this bronze serpent, look to it, and you'll be forgiven. And over time, what did Israel do it? They looked to it, and they worshipped it. And we'd have the originals in a case, and people would walk by and look at the originals and not be reading their Bibles and obeying them. Okay? Now, here's the real toughie. If only the second question, second critical question. If only the original writings were inspired and inerrant, and we no longer have the original writings, then how do our present day translations of the Bible have any authority? Let me put it real down on the bottom shelf. Can I say my Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word? Does God speak uniquely, authoritatively, and truthfully through? this present-day translation, when no two copies 
are totally agreed, right? Well, I've got five minutes to explain that to you, so let's, let's dive into that. Here it is. First of all, here's how, first of all, let me, again, let me point to you to that chart. God has providentially overlooked this 10-step process. This is God's process. So you can read through that. You can look at that. If you have questions about that, I'd love to discuss it. But here's what I want you to leave you with. Number one, we have more manuscript copies of the New Testament than any other historical document on the planet. And when we see other historical documents, do we assume they're reliable and authoritative and true to what was written? Sure we do. And yet the Bible... In fact, I think, there, let me put it this way. In the last 50 years, 800 were discovered. In the last 50 years, books that I had over 30 years ago in college and seminary are inaccurate on this number now. And some are even saying, I think there are reasons, I didn't you know, see this, Six, they're constantly adding to this. And guess what? They're in basic agreement. So what, what, what can we say about this? Well, one, Dan Wallace, who taught at Dallas Seminary where I was trained, is like the global expert on textual criticism on the text of the New Testament. Here's what he said. The difference between the New Testament manuscripts and others from the ancient world is illustrated in this way by Dan Wallace. If you place the manuscript copies of the the average ancient author, it would form a pile four feet high. Take your average ancient author, the number of copies we have of his writings four feet high. Pile these up, and it's a mile high. So that gives you some perspective. Okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were discovered here. One of the greatest biblical discoveries of our time. We had them here at Union Station. It was awesome. They have proven that the Old Testament is accurate and completely reliable due to meticulous copying by the scribes. So, second observation. While no two copies are exactly the same, By comparing the over 5,800 manuscripts and various textual evidence with each other, it is now recognized that the New Testament Greek text from which our Bibles are translated is 99.9% pure. So when Lonnie tells me the Bible is filled with errors and through the copying process we don't know what God said, that's simply not the truth. God's We don't have this original, but that original is somewhere and can be discovered within these copies. And I gave you a little diagram there that says 75, you know, you said, well, no two agree. And uh, Ehrman says, there's more differences than there are words. Yes, but you know, 75% of them are simple spelling errors. Or one, this document would say, Jesus Christ, in this document, would say Christ Jesus. Okay? And when you compare that to all the other ones, you're going to find, oh, wait a minute, it's Christ Jesus. And that is in the original. Apologist Norm Geisler says this. Well, uh, look at that diagram. Where there are some real issues about the text is only 1%. 1% in all these manuscripts, 1% of the differences are significant and none of those touch on essential doctrine of Christianity. I could have said to Lonnie, what part of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you don't understand? You know, in other words, the message is clear. The message is clear. So let me end with this. The English translation that we hold in our hands is for all practical purposes the very Word of God and is therefore reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. Now, you're like, well, I need more convincing. Well, I don't have time to do that. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit 
who dwells in your spirit, that when you read this word, when I went in to study Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, I, a couple of the profs had reputations of being liberal and, and the study of Hebrew had a reputation of undermining your faith. And I just made a simple decision going in. I'm going to stay with the Word of God. And when you do that, you have a discerning spirit. And you can tell when people are going off the tracks. And so you just make a determination today. Amen? I'm sticking with the Word of God. It is true, and I like what J.I. Packer says. We need to keep the Bible. We need to protect our Bible. We need to use our Bible. But also we need to keep to the Bible. We need to live by it. Because if this is God speaking truly, then I need to do what that true God says. Amen? So, Scripture alone, why? Because it's a unique book where God is speaking truthfully like no other book. Amen? All right, that's the best I can do in the time we have. Let's pray. Father, it's no small thing. The devil wants to undermine our faith in the Word because he wants us to undermine our faith in You. Now more than ever, more than ever, when culturally fake news, an onslaught of information that people are beginning to say, I don't know what to believe anymore. We have a sure and true and authoritative word from you. And our Bibles can be improved upon in translation, but the message and the content and what exactly you have said, you have spoken truthfully. And so, Father, let us be people who live truthfully without deception, without lies, without hidden sins. Let us be a people that are constantly reading and learning this true word that has no errors in it. Father, let, me, let us be on guard and watchful and not depart. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Treasure your Bible and read it this week.